Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So after they saw the great generosity of Barnabas and how well he was respected in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, Ananias and uh, Sapphira uh, decided that they wanted to receive that same respect. And so they sold the possession and only gave portion to the church while implying that they sacrificially gave it all to the church. So the ancient Greek word for kept back is uh, nosphizomai which means to misappropriate. And the same word was used of Achan's theft in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. The only other time Nosphizomai is used in the New Testament, it means to steal in Titus chapter 2, verse 10. So the story of Ananias is, the, is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan was in the book of Joshua. Both narratives and act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. <clears throat> so, Achan kept back an idol, right? And then when they went out to battle, they got they got crushed and they had to deal with the idol issue uh, in the book of Joshua. All right, so clearly with both husband and wife, uh, they were both partners in the deception here. They both wanted the image of great generosity without actually being remarkably generous. And so some of these evils packed under the sin of Ananias beyond the mere attempt to deceive God in the church. Um, some of those evils being the contempt of God, sacrilegious defrauding, perverse vanity and ambition, lack of faith, the corrupting of a good and holy order, and hypocrisy. Verse 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself, while it remained, while it was not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So apparently, uh, God gave Peter supernatural knowledge of what Ananias had done here. And this spiritual gift called the word of knowledge is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, where it says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. So when Peter said this, Ananias must have been crushed. Certainly he expected praise for his gift, uh, but he was rebuked instead. Peter saw that Satan was at work, even through a man numbered among believers like Ananias. So, because his sin was lusting after public praise for his generosity, it's appropriate that the sin be exposed publicly. And Peter did not accuse Ananias of lying to the church or to the apostles, but to the Holy Spirit himself. Peter clearly believed that the Holy Spirit was a person, because one can only lie to a person. He also believed the Holy Spirit is God. And so, Peter freely acknowledged that the land and its value belonged to Ananias alone, he was completely free to do with it what he wanted. His crime was not in withholding the money, but in deceptively implying that he gave it all. And so, of course, his sin was greed in keeping the money, but his greater sin is pride in wanting everyone to consider him so spiritual that he gave it all when he had not. And so their sin is imitated in many ways today. 
We can create or allow the impression that we are people of the Bible reading or prayer when we are not. We can create or allow the impression that we have it all together when we do not. Uh, we can exaggerate our spiritual accomplishments or effectiveness to appear something that we're not. It is too easy to be happy with the image of spirituality without the reality of a spiritual life. So their great sin was rooted in pride. Pride corrupts the church more quickly than anything else. And this shows <clears throat> how unnecessary their sin was. Ananias was free to use the money for whatever he wanted, except as a way to inflate his spiritual image and pride, right? And so Satan had filled the heart of Ananias, yet Peter could ask why he had conceived this thing in your heart. Satan can influence the life of a believer, even a spirit-filled believer, but he can't do your sinning for you. Ananias had to conceive it in his heart. Verse 5 and 6. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. So Peter did not pr pronounce a death sentence on Ananias. He simply confronted him with a sin, and Ananias fell down dead. It isn't the business of the church to pronounce a death sentence on anyone. So... This is a harsh penalty for a sin that seems to be common today. Some wonder if God was not excessively harsh against Ananias, right? <clears throat> and so the greater wonder is that God delays his righteous judgment in virtually all other cases. Ananias received exactly what he deserved. He simply could not live in the atmosphere of purity that marked the church at that time. And the physical means for the death of Ananias was perhaps a heart attack caused by a sudden, sudden shock or terror. He lived in a time and among a people who really believed there was a God in heaven that we must answer to. It frightened him to have his sin exposed and to know that he was accountable before God for it. He didn't yawn or debate when he was confronted with the sin. He fell down and breathed his last. And what Ananias did also must be seen in the context of its time. This was a critical juncture for the early church, and such impurity, sin, scandal, and satanic infiltration could have corrupted the entire church at its root. And we can surmise that one reason we don't see the same remarkable of judgment of God in this way today is because God's church has so many branches. Even if the entire body of Christ in the United States was to become corrupt through scandal or sin, there is plenty of strength in the other parts of the tree. <clears throat> and so the shock of being exposed was too much for Ananias. For many Christians in compromise, their greatest fear is not in sinning itself, but being found out. And as much as anything, the lesson of Ananias and uh, Sapphira is that we presume greatly on God when we assume that there is always time to repent, time to get right with God, time to get honest with Him. Any such time that's given by God is an undeserved gift that He owes to nobody. We should never assume it's always going to be there. And so God's purpose was accomplished in the church as a whole. This is evidence of a great work of God among His people. Verse 7 through 9. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. So Sapphira was a knowing and willing participant in the sin, as well as the blatant cover-up. So God's judgment of her was just as righteous as his judgment of Ananias. And we don't know if Ananias and Sapphira had a good or a bad marriage, if they often agreed often or fought often. 
We do know that they at least agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. They should have found agreement for the Lord instead of against him. All right, so they did this idea. They came to this idea together. Um, but if Ananias thought of it and pressured Sapphira to go along, he was wrong to do so, and she was wrong to go along with it. The concept of submission does not extend to submitting unto sin. Verse 10 and 11. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So fittingly, the same judgment came upon Sapphira that came upon her husband Ananias. Since they shared the same sin, it's fitting that they shared the same reaction to being found out, shock and horror. So they both died, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they did not go to heaven. It's impossible to say for certain, for only God knows. But we can see that it is possible for a Christian to sin unto death, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. Where we say, or it says, uh, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is not. There is sin not leading to death. <clears throat> All right, we have New Testament examples of saved Christians being judged by being brought home in death. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 32, where it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So true Christians do not lose their salvation by sinning. The punishment of Ananias and Sapphira, though extreme, was for this life only. In noticing the comparison between the incident of Ananias and Sapphira and Achan in the book of Joshua, it's interesting to also look at the contrast between those stories. In Joshua, God expects the people of God themselves to execute the judgment upon the offender. But in Acts, God took this type of judgment out of the church's hand and did it himself. This shows that the church has no place in administering such punishment itself or in having civil authorities to do so for them. So the name Sapphira uh, means beautiful in Aramaic. The name Ananias means God is gracious in Hebrew. And it might seem that their names contradicted their lives, but we see the beauty and graciousness in, of God in two significant ways. If Ananias and Sapphira were actually heaven-bound, it shows that God was beautiful and gracious enough to not deny them salvation, even for a grievous sin. The beauty and graciousness of God was seen in the continued blessing of God upon the church. He protected it not only against outside attack, but also against itself. If Ananias and Sapphira were filled with grace, this would have pleased them. Right? O oh Lord, take us to heaven now if you must, but let your work continue and let your name be glorified. And this is the first use of the word church in the book of Acts. The Christian ecclesia was both new and old. New because of its relation and witness to Jesus as Lord and to the epoch-making events of his death, exaltation, and ascending of the Spirit. Old as the continuation of the congregation of the Lord, which had formerly been confined within the limits of one nation. But now, having died and risen with Christ, was to be open to all believers without distinction. Verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord 
in Solomon's porch. So in Acts chapter 4 verse 30, we read that these early Christians prayed that God would continue to do signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. This shows that this prayer was answered and these remarkable signs and wonders continued. Often the fact that God's people are called are together all with one accord is a greater display of the power of the Holy Spirit than any particular sign or wonder. Our selfish hearts and stubborn minds can be harder to move than any mountain. So seemingly, God chose to do these miraculous works through the hands of the apostles and not mainly through others. Yet God wisely chooses which hands will bring a miracle. He had a purpose in doing it through the hands of the apostles. And uh, the second temple was a massive compound with extensive colonnades and covered areas. No doubt the early Christians gathered together in a particular area of the temple complex in an open uh, area to everybody. Verse 13 and 14. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So the community of Christians had a marvelous reputation for integrity, and everybody knew that it was a serious thing to be a follower of Jesus. And Ananias and Sapphira incident would reduce the level of casual commitment. And so yet the church kept on growing, and though people knew it was a serious thing to be a Christian, the Spirit of God kept moving with power. So new believers were added, added to the Lord, not to a church or to a person or even to a movement, but to God himself. They were added in multitudes. The mention of multitudes of both men and women is Luke's way of reminding us that the cleansing of the church connected with Ananias and Sapphira did no lasting damage. Verse 15 and 16. So that they brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So people were so convinced of the reality and power of what the Christians believed, they thought that they could be healed by a mere touch of Peter's shadow. Our text does not specifically say that people were healed by Peter's shadow. It merely tells us that people thought it would, and they took action based on that belief. So assuming people were healed, apparently even the shadow of Peter became a point of contact where people released faith in Jesus as a healer. And it seems that people well understood what Peter said in Acts chapter 3, verse 12 through 16, that Jesus heals even if he does his healing work through his apostles. And so it may sound crazy that one could be healed by the touch of a shadow, but we know a touch of Jesus' clothing healed a woman in Luke chapter 8, verse 44. There wasn't anything magical in the garment, but it's a way that her faith was released. In the same, there is no power in Peter's shadow itself, but there's a power when a person believed in Jesus to heal them, and the passing of Peter's shadow may have helped some to believe. So, however, God chose to bring the healing. Uh, there's no doubt that a remarkable work of healing was present, and we shouldn't miss the connection between the purity preserved in the first part of the chapter with the death of Ananias and the fear of God among the Christians, and the power that's, that is displayed here. God bless a pure church with spiritual power. And this is the first mention of the work extending beyond Jerusalem. People came there instead of the apostles going to them. This is exciting, but not exactly according to the command of Jesus. He told the disciples to go out to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And the apostles didn't leave Jerusalem until they were forced to by persecution in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 and chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Verse 17 and 18. 
Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So the meeting of Peter and John with the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4 ended well for the early followers of Jesus. Yet that's not the end of the matter, and the religious establishment again pushed against them. The apostles, like Jesus whom they represented, were persecuted because of their good works and popularity were a threat to those who had an interest in the status quo of the religious establishment. Sadly, the religious establishment of that day left the people worse off, not better. So seemingly, this also included all the apostles. Uh, It wasn't the first time that Peter and John had been imprisoned in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. So this is easy for God to arrange. Angels are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. God sent forth this angel to minister for the apostles. Locked doors are nothing for God or those who he uses. Possibly they only understood this was an angel in retrospect. Angels often come in human appearance, and it may not always be easy to recognize an angel in Luke chapter 24 and Hebrews chapter 13. So their rescue from prison was wonderful, but for a purpose, so they could continue their work. God didn't set them free primarily for their safety or comfort. They were set free for a reason, and after this, they're not always delivered. So the later history of the apostles and others associated with them in the early church shows sometimes God delivers by miracle and sometimes he does not. And according to you know the fairly reliable church history and tradition, uh, miraculous angels did not always deliver them. Matthew was beheaded with the sword. Mark, Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. John died a natural death, but they unsuccessfully tried to boil him in oil. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a height, then beaten with clubs. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was whipped and beaten into death. Andrew was crucified and preached at the top of his voice to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through with a spear. Jude was killed with arrows of an executioner. Uh, Matthias was stoned and then beheaded, as was Barnabas, and Paul was beheaded in Rome. So this reminds us that we should trust God for miraculous things and wish to see them more and more, but knowing that he has a purpose when he does not deliver with a miraculous hand. We also see that we, like the apostles, are set free for a purpose, not merely to live for ourselves. Verse 21 through 23. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So... Uh, In this, you have remarkable obedience and boldness. If they were not sure if God wanted them to continue their public teaching work, uh, the word from the angel in Acts chapter 5 verse 20 makes it clear that they were to continue on. So they went to the most public place they could, the temple, and as soon as they could, early in the morning. uh, When they were thought to be in prison, they were obediently teaching God's word to the common people. And so there's humor in all this. Uh, The religious establishment gathers to deal with the troublemakers who teach about Jesus. They intimidate them with a prison stay and bring them to the council to put them in the proper place. Yet when the officers look, they saw the prison door as it should be, uh, and the guards as they should be, and no apostles in the cell. Verse 24 through 26. 
Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. So at this point, the religious leaders had to wonder just what they were dealing with. There was a repeated evidence of supernatural power at work with the followers of Jesus. And so the apostles were soon arrested again. It was perhaps tempting for them to think that since they were miraculously released, that God would keep them from being arrested again, but that wasn't the case. And so when the apostles went back into custody, they knew how easy it would be for God to release them again if it pleased him to do so. And so their past experience of the power of God had filled them with faith for the present. Significantly, the apostles did not appeal to popular opinion for protection against the religious leaders. They could have incited the crowd by shouting, Are you going to let them take us away? But their trust was in God and God alone. A carnal solution to their problem was available, but they did, they did not use it. The hearts of the religious leaders were again exposed. They feared the people, but they did not fear God, who clearly showed that he was at work among his disciples. Verse 27 and 28. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So this is another attempt to intimidate the apostles with the trappings of the council's institutional authority. The apostles, knowing how God protected them, were probably not intimidated or even overly impressed. And they had commanded Peter and John to no longer teach in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. Yet Peter and John openly told them that they would continue in obedience to God in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. And so the accusation of the high priest was a wonderful testimony to the effectiveness of the message preached by the apostles. Their message had filled Jerusalem. And by calling Jesus this man, the religious leaders were obviously avoiding the name Jesus. But they could not avoid the power of Jesus. It stared them right in the face. And so the charge that the apostles did not intend to bring this man's blood upon us is interesting. The high priest no doubt meant that the apostles intended to hold the Jewish leaders responsible in some measure for the execution of Jesus, like in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Yet we know that the apostles must have desired for the high priest and other Jewish leaders to come to faith in Jesus, even as some other priests did in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. For certain, the apostles wanted to bring the covering, cleansing blood of Jesus, upon the high priest and others in the council verse 29 through 32 but peter and the other apostles answered and said we ought to obey god rather than men the god of our fathers raised up jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree him god has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins and we are his witnesses to these things and so also is the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey him so this is a testimony of great boldness in contrast to the sanhedrin who were more concerned about man's opinion than God's opinion. So the apostles' response to the council is not a defense, nor was it a plea for mercy. It's a simple explanation of action. In general, the New Testament teaches that we should submit to those in authority over us, yet submission on the human level is never absolute, and never is more important than submission to God. And so we get this testimony of that is uh, faithful to the foundation of the Christian faith, Peter spoke of man's guilt, Jesus whom you murdered, Jesus' death, hanging on a tree, Jesus' resurrection, him God exalted to his right hand, and man's responsibility to respond, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Peter referred to the cross as a tree because it drew an association from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23. 
where it says that a person hanging from a tree is cursed by God. And Peter brought attention to the magnitude of the rejection of Jesus, pointing out that they killed him in the worst way possible, both from the Roman perspective, the cross, and the Jewish perspective, the tree association. While a xylon, or tree in the Greek, was used in antiquity, and in the Septuagint, variously for a tree, wood of any kind, or a pole, and various objects made of wood, including gallows, it's also used in the New Testament for the cross of Jesus here. And so you have this reliable testimony because it's based on eyewitness, uh, which was also confirmed by God. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. So Peter and the apostles had clearly and briefly explained to them again the core ideas of who Jesus was and what he did for all of us on the cross and how we should respond to who Jesus is and what he did. But their reaction was furious anger. And right then, the death of the apostles was set in motion. We had not previously read that they wanted to kill them, but now it's clear. Verse 34 through 39. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found and to fight against God. So... Gamaliel is the grandson of the esteemed Hillel, the founder of Israel's strongest school of religion. Gamaliel was given the title Rabban, or Our Teacher, which was a step above the title Rab, Teacher, or Rabbi, My Teacher. And so Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentioned a, Th- a Thutis who led a rebellion, but uh, at a later point than this. It could be that Josephus had his dates mixed up or that this was a different Thutis. It was a common name. Josephus did describe a Judas of Galilee in Antiquities who may be the same one that's mentioned here. And Gamaliel spoke for himself and not for God. There are many movements that may be considered successful in the sight of man, but are against God's truth. Success is not the ultimate measure of truth. So Gamaliel here is proposing the test of time, and it's an important test. But more important than the test of time is the test of eternity. Verse 40 through 42. And they agreed with him, and when they called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the leaders thought that they could intimidate and discourage the apostles with a beating. Instead, they left rejoicing. They were not rejoicing that they suffered, but that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's a privilege to be associated with Jesus in any circumstance, even to suffer shame. And whatever beating or shameful treatment the Sanhedrin gave them, it did absolutely no good. The disciples didn't stop preaching for a moment. This challenges each of us as followers of Jesus. They continued where we might have stopped. We often find the threat of social rejection enough to keep us quiet about who Jesus is and what he did for us. The need to have the apostles' courage and determination to stand firm for Jesus Christ. 